Well, I'd like to start this new term with a quiz. And there are three names, Pharaoh, the Emperor Nero, Adolf Hitler. And they're going to be two quotations. And I'd like you to write down who you think said what. So here are the quotes. Are you ready? So got your pencils out. Uh, Throw these worthless servants into the darkness. They can weep there and grind their teeth. Quote two, get out of my presence, you damned, and go to the fire that will burn forever. Well, of course, it's a trick question because the answer is none of the above. The person who said those things, ladies and gentlemen, was the Lord Jesus Christ. He said those things. And on both occasions, he was speaking about hell, as indeed he is in the passage that we have before us this morning. And here he's being equally unequivocal, can you see? And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. And it's to the subject of hell that we come this morning. And contrary to what I suppose is much popular opinion, we are not always speaking about hell in the church. Actually, as a matter of fact, it's scarcely raised in the church today and very infrequently preached upon. I was stimulated to write and and preach this sermon uh, now because of our summer reading. We had some super summer reading, Knowing God, uh, through the summer. We read it together at our uh, our camp. We're going to be reading it through the year. It's a wonderful book. And in one of the chapters, Jim Packer asks this question. How often in the past did you hear, or uh, 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 if you're a minister, did you preach a sermon on this subject? Actually, in the book, it's how often in the past year did you do that? I heard this story on good authority, so this was told me by Sinclair Ferguson, who's a minister up in Scotland, greatly respected, and he told me this. A member of the royal family was leaving one of the great worship centres of England and said to the presiding minister, a figure of some significance in the hierarchy of the church, is it true there is a hell? So this member of the Lord's, uh, of the royal family asked this minister that question. The minister replied, your highness, Jesus taught so, the church has always believed so, and the creeds teach so. And the reply he got was this, then why in the name of God will you not say so? And actually, I wrote this book, uh, Honest Evangelism. Here it is. It sold very well, actually. I've sold 17 copies. It's been an outstandingly (laughs) successful book. Very, very successful. Honestly, it's gone off the shelves like you can't imagine. But I wrote it because actually we're not we're not honest with people about what's at stake in evangelism, and we're not honest as we train people about what's at stake. And it was interesting to hear Jim Packer highlight that in Knowing God. There is a pain line to cross. And I think there are many things that stop us uh, speaking of hell. I mean, it's scarcely used in a worship service today. Uh, It it tends to cause a sharp intake of breath if it is used. It's a profoundly serious word. It's not a subject of polite conversation. In fact, I know of no subject that that is less appreciated than speaking of this subject. Indeed, there is, in fact, as I've thought about this, uh, uh, only one context in in which the word may be used uh, without feathers being ruffled. And that is when it's used as a curse or a joke. I think that's the only time you can use the word hell. We seek him here, we seek him there. Those Frenchies seek him everywhere. Is he in heaven, is he in hell? That damned elusive pimpernel. So it's amusing and pure trivialization. 
But ladies and gentlemen, hell is a word that is used in the Bible. Hell is a subject that runs right through the Bible. And you cannot, you cannot fully appreciate the coming of Jesus Christ without grasping what the Bible says about hell. Let me say that again. You cannot fully appreciate the coming of Jesus without grasping what the Bible says about hell. So just as in a great painting, it's often the dark backcloth which makes the foreground appear so luminous and shine with such clarity, so there is a sense in which it is only as we plummet the dark depths about human destiny and depravity that the wonder of God's, God's love and grace become apparent and become the amazing provision which they are. So we have this course, Christianity Explored. It's for those investigating the Christian faith. It starts on Monday, the 17th of October in the evening, that Monday night here at All Souls. And in that course, we will walk people through the dark valley of sin, death, wrath, and hell in order that people find their joy and their identity in what God has done in his grace. But it's only when they see the debt they have that they see the wonder of the gospel. So it was Victor Hugo who said these words, life's greatest happiness is to be convinced we're loved. And that's what the gospel does, but you have to get the bad news. By the way, I'm sorry about the picture of Victor Hugo there. He does look miserable. He doesn't look as though he's convinced he's loved, does he? But anyway... (laughs) But, 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 but the gospel does that as we see the wonder of salvation set against the dark depths of our own need and sinfulness. So we cannot fully appreciate what it means to be raised up to the promise of heaven until we realize we're raised up there from the prospect of hell. And like I'm sure quite a number of you, I, I can't tell you with what sadness and weariness I speak I come from a family, and I love the people in my family, in which so many of them, of my relatives, conduct their lives, convinced that these solemn truths are untrue, or, if true, are somehow irrelevant. Just extraordinary. Just They just blank this stuff. I mean, it's either not true, or if it's true, it's not relevant to me because of the good life I live. And I ask us to try and ask and answer some crucial questions about the subject of hell this morning and explain why it's so vitally important for us as Christians and more especially how important it is for us if we're not Christians here this morning. Uh, Some of you will not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You've come this morning. Can I say thank you so much for coming? We're so grateful. And I would like to say to you, if what I'm saying over the next 20 minutes is true, then this is without question the most important 20 minutes of your life, if it's true. It's the most important 20 minutes of your life. So question one, does hell really exist? Paul the Apostle tells us in 2 Timothy 1.11 of the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. And please remember the context here in 2 Timothy. Paul is in the Mamertine jail. He faces the executioner's sword. He is about to be killed. And in those days leading up to his death, he says, Jesus Christ has destroyed death. In other words, by his death on Good Friday and his resurrection on Easter Day, Jesus has secured for us eternal life. He got through death himself and he will get us through. Yesterday here, it was very moving to have the 
funeral service of this man, the memorial service of this man, Peter Hart, who was a paramedic who died of COVID during the pandemic. He literally died serving others. He inhaled such levels of the, um, uh, 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 of the bug that he, 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 his heart could not recover. And it was amazing yesterday to speak of the day of reunion. We will see him again because of Jesus. That past certainty gives us a future hope. It was a wonderful thing. So the proper epitaph for the Christian is not RIP, rest in peace, but CAD, Christ abolished death. And so what we have to ask at this point, in the light of the resurrection that Jesus returned from the dead, which we preached of here yesterday, we have to ask, what do you say about life and death, Jesus Christ? Jesus, what do you say about those things? And he not only makes heaven and the new creation real and clear and assured, he also, ladies and gentlemen, is the one supremely in the pages of the New Testament who makes the reality of hell clear. He knows he's risen from the dead. And you have no integrity as a preacher if yesterday you preach the resurrection and today you don't also say what Jesus says about the reality of hell. So let me say categorically that the one who most clearly and most fully teaches the fact of hell is Jesus. He's died to rescue us. He's risen again. And so I just want to have a look at the words of Jesus, because for me, the first time I did this, it was a shock. I went through Matthew's gospel and I saw what he said. You know, lots of people say that they love the Sermon on the Mount. They live by every word of it. Really? Well, let's see what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Matthew 5, verse 22. Anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Matthew 5, verse 29. If your right eye causes you to stumble, an echo of the passage we've just looked at, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Matthew 7, verse 13. Now, I'd like you just to turn to this. Would you do that with me? Because I want to show you something. Can we turn back to Matthew 7? I think this is terribly important as we think of this subject. Matthew 7, verse 13, it's at the top of page 972. And can you see where this appears in the Sermon on the Mount? So verse 13, Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. And then, do you see the next verse? Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. And the false prophets we know from Jeremiah 15 and Jeremiah 23, words that are picked up and are echoed here, are those who will not teach the truth. They devour the sheep. And it's very interesting, isn't it, that the road to destruction is described and the next thing we get is a false prophet. Why? Because the false prophet... The way you can diagnose one, here's a major diagnosis, is they will not speak clearly of the destruction that is to come of wrath and hell. If they are withholding those truths, it is a sign that they are false in terms of faithful teaching to the Bible. Matthew 8 verse 12, but the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, says Jesus. And it goes on, Matthew 10 verse 28, don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, rather be afraid of the one who destroys both soul and body in hell. Matthew 13 verse 42, they'll throw them into the blazing furnace where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Well, I wonder if you turn back now to Mark chapter 9. So if we can turn back to page 1012 to our passage. And as we've had that little tour of Matthew's gospel, I just wonder if you can see this theme of judgment leading to condemnation, leading to conditions. Here they are up on the screen variously described as weeping or lostness or gnashing of teeth or flames of fire. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is most clearly stated in the teaching of Jesus. And of course, that must be true because he is the one supremely who understands what he has come into the world to do to save men and women from this. I mean, these warnings that he issues, this vivid language that he uses, why does he, loving Jesus, passionate Jesus, caring Jesus, life-transforming Jesus, why does he, of all people, not keep silent about this? Because this is the very reason in which he came into the world. Because unless he comes to die, the destiny that awaits men and women is beyond thinking, beyond bearing. And I know this is mentally so difficult to take because you walk out into Regent Street and we are not in a world that believes this. In fact, we are in a world that is disgusted by this. But this is the Jesus we have here. And may I say, ladies and gentlemen, this is the only Jesus there is. Ladies and gentlemen, if this is not Jesus, we have no idea who Jesus is. Look at what he says again and again in Matthew's gospel. It is the one who came to save sinners and who gives us the ultimate understanding of why we need salvation. Because without this, our destiny is one of infinite loss. When I first arrived here at All Souls 29 years ago in 1995, after I'd been ordained one year, I was given a tough passage on judgment to preach on by Richard Pugh's the rector, this was the passage. It was from 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9. He, the Lord, will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So I preached that sermon and a week later I received a letter from a man from another continent who'd visited London three weeks after burying his beloved wife who had died after 40 happy years of marriage and they had never gone to church and he had come to church for once after 40 years for solace and he wrote me this letter. I can't imagine a just, kind and loving God inflicting pain upon my wife. That is the sort of niggardly, cramped view that something inside me tells me is wrong. I think you're really preaching your own bizarre views when you say that those who do not believe in Christ and do not follow the gospel are going to hell. Why you have such views is another matter, but particularly where your views have such a horrendous effect upon others, I think you should carefully consider whether to speak in such a manner. Uh, In December 1984, there was a huge fog on the M25 motorway. And early in the morning, a lorry carrying paper crashed in the fog and all the warning lights were on. The hazard signs were out. The police arrived early on the scene. But driver after driver ignored the warning lights, 
ignored the hazard signs, ignored the fog, and drove on. And apparently policemen, realising what was happening, became so possessed with fear of the destruction that they were seeing that they actually picked up traffic cones and started hurling them at people's screens. And do you know what happened? It made the drivers accelerate. And, and one newspaper reporting on the scene said one policeman had tears running down his face as he threw cones at the drivers who would pay no attention. I mean, just, just a desperate scene. But nevertheless, that's one that was there. And at the end of the day, it simply would not be possible to be faithful to the Jesus of the Gospels without understanding that he is the one who supremely warns us of the judgment of hell. He tells us it's real, ladies and gentlemen. He is throwing cones at the screen. This is what he does. Why does he do it? The one who was raised from the dead tells us hell exists. So point one, does hell exist? Is it real? Yes, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus says so. And if I want to speak at the memorial service yesterday of the resurrection, how can I not also speak of this? We have to trust him for both if we're to be faithful. Secondly, what then is hell like? Now, this may be something that many of us as Christians are likely to say, well, it's something about which the Bible speaks so little that anything I said would be speculation, when the truth of the matter is almost the reverse. The Bible has yards, meters of information about the nature of hell, ladies and gentlemen. Granted, the Bible understands that the reality of hell is so terrible that it must in its very nature go beyond the power of human language to either explain or describe, but it does have several important things to say, ladies and gentlemen, about the nature of hell, and the first is that it is a sphere of punishment. The whole function of Jesus' teaching is to underscore for us that there is a just judgment in which men and women are separated from God's presence and his gifts as a penal judgment for their rejection of God's authority, and above all, for their rejection of Jesus. What makes God most angry, ladies and gentlemen, is the rejection of his son. He sends his son to die, and we say, I don't need it, I've lived a good life. And may I say, ladies and gentlemen, that puts you at the heart of what makes God angry. Say my son was uh, out on the road outside and a lorry was coming along and he saw it was about to hit you. He ran across, he pushed you out of the way, he got hit and killed and you turned around as he's lying there dead and said there was no need for him to do it, I was fine. When we know he saved you. How would I feel if you said no need for Daniel to do it? God sent his son Jesus to die and people say I don't need it, I'm fine. And nothing makes him more cross. And for this rejection of Jesus and rejection of God's authority and living our own way, punishment is described. So again, the verse says, Mark 9, 48, the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. I mean, it is unimaginably painful. Secondly, hell is a place of separation, of outer darkness. Now, living in London, we, we can't imagine total darkness, but perhaps you had this in holiday. Maybe you're in the Highlands of Scotland. You can go into the Highlands of Scotland, as I have done, and you can hold your, your hand right there and not see it, such as the utter darkness. You can see nothing. Well, we're told by Jesus that hell is a place of isolation. We're alone, disorientation, separation from all the relationships that give us our identity our value, our sense of function. So it is a place of total separation, ladies and gentlemen. 
And perhaps the most solemn thing of all is the way our Lord Jesus uses the word everlasting about this sphere. Disorientation we can take for a moment, punishment we can endure for a season, separation we could cope with if we knew that it would end. But the horror of this situation is the way that, again, our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we trust for eternal life, uses the word everlasting and eternal. So he says in Matthew 25, verse 46, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. And the word ionos is the same word for eternal punishment as for eternal life. Ladies and gentlemen, it's the same word. Now, what does this say to us? It says this. It says that God takes your life with infinite seriousness, and he takes your relationship to him with infinite seriousness. And on this occasion, I mean infinite when I say infinite. And if we reject that relationship, then we reject him who is life and the source of life. And in a strange way, ladies and gentlemen, he dignifies us by saying, I will take your decision about your relationship with me with permanent seriousness. So is hell real? Yes, Jesus says so. What is it like? It is a place of suffering. Thirdly, who is it for? Who is hell for? Well, can we look back to our passage and can we see as we look down, please, and verse 43. Let me read from verse 43 on page 1013. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Who is hell for? Hell is for the person who says, nobody tells me what I do with my hands. And nobody tells me what I do with my feet and where I go. And nobody tells me what I look at with my eyes. To which the Bible response, actually, God made your hands. And what you do with them is God's business. He's your creator. God made your feet and where you go is God's business. God made your eyes, and what you do with your eyes, the eyes he's given you, is the creator's business, which is a good thing, because how I treat you and how you treat me and how we treat the world matters to God. It's massively helpful, if you're relating to me, that you believe in a future judgment. I'm thrilled if you do. It changes your behavior, ladies and gentlemen. And God says, what you do with the hands I've made is my business. And I will hold you accountable. And of course, as we come to the culture, let's remember the words of of John Stott. Uncle John said, the road to destruction is defined by two things in this culture. He was speaking on Matthew 7. Tolerance and permissiveness. So that road to destruction, what's it like? Tolerance. I can think as I please. And how dare you judge me? Permissiveness. I can do as I please. And I will not have you judge me. I'm an individual. I'll exercise my rights. And God says, no, I've made your hands, your feet, your eyes, and I'll hold you accountable for how you use them made in my image. And so what we're told here, again, again at the start of the new term, this is so important. Please pray this for me. We're told kill sin or be killed by it. Of course, by the cross, we've got to go and get forgiven 
There's power there in the Spirit's work, but I've got to take drastic action and do surgery. Jesus is not advocating self-mutilation here, but he is saying sin is such a destructive force that there can be no negotiation. So as you come back for September, perhaps from holiday, can I say we go again battling sin and please pray that I will do the same. And Jesus said, light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. The reason we reject God is not so much metaphysical, it's moral. That's why we reject him. And there is a battle for all of us, and there can be no negotiation. Do you know, uh, it's interesting, I have a friend called uh, Sam uh, 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 so who is hell for it? It's for those who live as they please. I've got this friend, Sam Aubrey, and he is a clergyman in Oxfordshire. And uh, he is a same-sex attracted celibate vicar. So he's a deeply Christian man. He is same-sex attracted. But because of his love and following of Jesus, um, he is celibate. And his bishop said to him, um, his bishop said, the bishop of Oxford, He said, don't be repressed, Sam. You can have a same-sex partner. You can follow these inclinations. And Sam's response to the bishop was, Bishop, you're saying to me what the devil says. Which is an interesting thing to have to say to your bishop if if he's in charge of you spiritually. This is a battle that that we have. Sam is a, a wonderful Christian man. He said, Bishop, how can you say that? What I do with my hands, where I what I do with my body matters to God. You're saying it doesn't. And as we heard in our prayers, can I say that the only place for sex is within marriage between a man and a woman. And heterosexual and homosexual sex is something that God will judge. (sighs) Only sex within marriage, and that is going to be a huge battle in the Church of England in the months ahead. But we will not move on this issue because of what the Bible says. So is hell for real? Yes, Jesus says so. What is it like? It is a place of punishment, separation, darkness and fire. Who is it is for? It is for those who say, I will not change. I won't change. I'll do as I please and I'll ignore Jesus. And lastly then, how can I escape if at all possible? Well, the amazing news is, is that it is possible that I escape. There is an escape, ladies and gentlemen. But in order to escape, we have to have some sense of why it is so important which is why, as Jim Packer says, that, that, that we, we've got to be teaching this subject. <laughs> you've, got to, you've got to get, my goodness me, this is, this is overwhelmingly important as the term starts. I mean, look where we are. The worm does not die. The fire doesn't go, isn't quenched. These are the words of Jesus. Um, like all of you, I, I'm sure you'll never forget when you first saw the picture of the Twin Towers, 9-11, in the south end of Manhattan Island. And seeing those almost unimaginable pictures of horror, people were experiencing up at the top floors of those great buildings. And do you remember, they were actually joining hands and leaping, leaping to the ground for anything would be better than this fire in the building. It was absolutely overwhelmingly traumatic to see. So if we can see the danger of sin, then we will ask, how can we escape? But only if we see its danger. And that danger is preached to us. Well, the reason Jesus came into the world is to bear the hell we deserve. That's why he came into the world, to bear it. He came in order that we might be saved from that awful destiny and rescued for the new creation. 
as I spoke of yesterday at the funeral. We are saved from hell, through the cross, for heaven. And there is no other explanation, no other reason for that terrible cry of his on the afternoon of the crucifixion. My God, this is out of darkness. Why have you forsaken me? Do you see what was happening there? He was entering into death as the judgment of God against my sin, against what my hands and my feet and my eyes have done, fell on him as he took my place for your sin and for mine. So Jesus cries out, why have I been forsaken by you, Lord? And if there is anything that would persuade you that the judgment of God is an awful thing to undergo, then please go to Calvary. Go to the cross and hear that cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can you not see how terrible hell must be that he had to endure that? As Jesus experiences the essence of hell, the outer darkness, the weeping, the gnashing of teeth, the sin that I have committed falling upon him. But there in the depths of that cry, piercing the afternoon darkness, he provides the rescue from your plight He opens the door to heaven and makes a way of escape. For as he cries, my God, my God, why have I been forsaken? Well, what happens? You through Christ can gasp, my God, why have I been accepted? What did you have to do for me to be accepted? Uh, This belonged to my mother. She kept it on her desk and I keep it on mine. And if you want to understand what it is to be loved by God, then understand the hell we should have and see what he has done so that you can be accepted. And you must be an incredibly precious person, incredibly precious, that Jesus should do that to save you from this eternity. Can you imagine how valuable you are that he should do that? And our prayer at all souls is that that will be right at the center of your identity and our mission. Because it is a message of overwhelming love and kindness. The depths he went to to save us. It's no small thing. Do you know, a hundred years ago, preachers would frequently finish their sermons by asking this question. Where will you spend eternity? Where will you spend it? Well, by God's grace, may there be no doubt what your answer will be. Let's pray together. And just as we pray, I want to just put up a prayer, which is for those people here who are not Christian. And you've come today, and it's lovely to have you here. And here is a prayer that will enable you to trust in what Christ has done to save you from hell. So let me read this prayer for you, and then a second time I will echo it. I will say it slowly, and you can echo it phrase by phrase in your own heart, if that is something that this morning you feel you need to do. Lord Jesus Christ, I'm so sorry for what my hands, feet, and eyes have done in your world. Please forgive me. Thank you so much for bearing all my sin on the cross. Please send your spirit to help me turn away from everything in my life, which the Bible says is wrong, and follow you. So I'm going to say it phrase by phrase, and for the one or two non-Christians here for whom it's right, please echo this with me. We're so thrilled you're here. 
So here it is. I'll say it slowly, just in the silence. Echo it after me. Lord Jesus Christ, I'm so sorry for what my hands, feet and eyes have done in your world. Please forgive me. Thank you so much for bearing all my sin on the cross. Please send your spirit to help me turn away from everything in my life, which the Bible says is wrong, and follow you. Amen.